Thank you for listening to audio from Gospel Community Church in Eugene, Oregon. For more information about our church or our Sunday services, please visit gccugene.org. Good morning. Well, as Caleb said, uh, my name is Ronnie. Um, I wish I could say it's good to see you all, but it's good to see you all. Um, And if you're watching at home, we're glad you're still here with us. Sorry, let me get more in the shot. Um, Couple quick announcements before we jump in. Rick wanted me to let you know that he will be pushing out an email soon in regards to the services that he talked about last week. So the registration process, all that stuff, uh, Pastor Rick's going to be sending out an email with a little bit more information on that. Also, um, as Rick said last week, Gospel Community Church as a whole has been encouraged by your giving. Um, If you're looking to give and trying to figure out if you call GCC your home and want to know how you can contribute to the gospel being spread in in Eugene in the greater Lane County area, there's multiple ways to do that. There's, uh, you can go to the online website, GCC Eugene. And there's also the Church Center app, um, and then maybe even in the coming weeks as we start meeting again, maybe there will be a way to physically give again. So, um, with that said, we're jumping back in today into the Saints and Society series that we've been going through. I'm picking up where Rick left off a couple couple weeks ago in chapter 7. I believe he closed out chapter 7 with a section on divorce. And we're jumping in at the very beginning of chapter 8. So we're going to be looking today at 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. And as we come into chapters 8 through 9, we're going to be looking at Christian freedom, how the gospel gives us freedom in many different areas of life, and how how that works practically in the life of a Christian. And so this sermon will be kind of a good introduction into that, I think, maybe even a good pause and something to kind of consider before we move into this section. So something we, we aim for, we strive here at Gospel Community Church is to make Jesus the hero. I hope that that comes across in the sermon today. I hope that comes across through everything we do. We kind of stumble our way through making that happen, but we always want to, in everything we're doing, pursue the aim of making Jesus a hero. We, always don't, we don't always do that perfectly, but we would hope that in all that we're doing, we're pointed to him as the hero of history because he is. The situation in which we find ourselves in, from the fallen state of Adam that we're born into, and even the sin in our own lives, the rebellion that we've continued in since our birth, the separation we have from God, Jesus steps into humanity, living the perfect life we didn't live, dying the death that we deserved and reconciling us back to the Father. So he is the hero of all human history, so we seek to do that through everything we do. So that's my goal. I I hope the love of Christ comes through this sermon today as as we talk about uh, what Paul discusses here in the first three verses of chapter 8. So if you have a a Bible, I implore you, open it. Let's read it together. Let's look at it. Let's allow God's word to shape and transform our hearts and the way we see one another and the way we live practically as followers, as disciples of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 8, verses 1 through 3. We'll read them now. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, 
He is known by God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that we have a means which we can still communicate the gospel and, and be involved with one another. Thank you for the, the, worship, the, the music that we can still worship you through song. We thank you that we're still able to worship you through the reading of your word and the exposition of it. We pray that it wouldn't just be something uh, that we would read as if it's a textbook to be uh, memorized or lessons learned from it, but something that's living and active and moving in our hearts and shaping the way we think, the, way, the things we do, the way we interact with one another. I pray that with this sermon specifically, we would look at the principles that Paul gives us and really ask the deeper questions in how do we love our brothers and sisters in Christ better, and how do we then go and be an example of the love of Christ for the world around us? God, we pray that you are made much today in the sermon as we go and live our lives as Christians in this world. We love you, God. We thank you for your word, and we thank you for this time. Amen. Very first thing, as we jump into the beginning of chapter 8, it's almost as if Paul is actually kind of continuing a series of things from the beginning of chapter 7. Because if you look down in verse 1 of chapter 8, the very first thing Paul says is the words, now concerning. That's, that is significant because if you look back at chapter 7, verse 1, he says, now concerning about the matters which you wrote. So, it seems that there was some kind of correspondence going back and forth between Paul and the Corinthians, whether it was because of his first visit or maybe there was more than just this letter. But it seems that the Corinthians were asking Paul some questions about how to live practically as a Christian in the world, which is perfectly aligned with the title of this series that we've been going through, Saints and Society, because they're asking the question, how do we live practically as followers of Christ? And that they're asking very practical questions, stuff that they're doing day by day, things that their culture is involved in, things that maybe they used to be involved in are now questioning whether or not they can still do this and follow Jesus. And so Paul continues this theme. In chapter 7, he answered a bunch of questions as far as uh, sexual relationships inside of marriage and singleness and divorce and, and issues regarding that. But now a new question comes up that he's addressing. And it's food offered to idols. And some of us may say, see this, food offered to idols, and go, and go what, what is the relevance for us today in this? Because nobody today is offering food to idols. It, it's, it's a pagan cultural practice that is almost dead. Um, I, I doubt it's practiced anywhere in America. If it still is, it's probably Florida. Um, but it, it's just something nobody does anymore. What, what was going on, though, at the time is people would bring something like, no offense to people in Florida, by the way, it's just a joke. Um, <laughs> people would bring this meat into the temple, and they believed it had like demons in it or something, so they would offer it up to these, these idols, these statues, and it was somehow supposed to cleanse the meat of the demons, and then they could eat it, and all different kinds of stuff like this. And, and many of the Christians were part of this pagan practice and culture, and, and it was very popular, and so they were going and doing this, but now... Now they're Christians. Now they believe there's only one God and there is no other God. So can they still do this? But there is still relevance in what's going on here. Just as in chapter 7 when Paul is instructing them and giving them guidance, he does the same thing here in 8. And what's interesting, he does the same thing he does in 7. He doesn't give a black and white answer. He doesn't just say yes or no. In regards to food offered to idols, he doesn't just say yes, you can do that, go ahead, or no, don't do that. Uh, but instead, he uses this as an opportunity to instruct. 
if you know anything about the life of Paul, and I'll give a quick summation, this is actually very wise of Paul to be doing, and I think it's the Holy Spirit inspiring him to give the answer that he gives, because look at the life of Paul. He had to have known that at any second, he would have been gone. And if he's the one sitting there answering every single question for the Corinthians, what do they do when he's gone? How do they answer questions in the future if Paul was the one coming down with these decisive decisions, yes, don't do this, no, don't do this? Because think about it, he was shipwrecked, he was stoned, he was lashed, he was beaten, he was imprisoned. And eventually we know from church history and tradition that he was martyred for the faith. So, Paul knows that there will be future problems that the church will come into contact with, future questions. And so Paul, in the wisdom of the Holy Spirit, is seeking to give them instruction to say, hey, this is the kind of heart you need to have in answering questions like this. He's not trying to be political or anything, but he's trying to get Christians to think critically and think with their hearts and how to best love and serve one another. Now, as I said, nobody's offering food to idols today, and I understand that. But we have in our own time, especially in the year 2020, our own controversies of our own day. And there are plenty of them. Uh, Just literally last week, I went to Jerry's with my oldest son. It was uh, Father's Day. Nicole said that I could go get a new weed whacker for Father's Day. Just keep it under this price range or whatever. So I go to Jerry's with my oldest son. We have four kids, so it's, we kind of like to take If we're going out on a trip, sometimes we'll only take one child just to give them a little extra daddy-mommy time, you know, let them know we didn't forget about them, that they're still an individual. And anyways, I take my son with me, and the associate goes to look in the back to see if there's another weed whacker, because I guess the one I wanted didn't have oil with it. So he takes off, and I'm sitting there with my son. He's kind of playing, running between my legs and everything, and all of a sudden from behind me, I hear one gentleman yell, um, what's the matter, tough guy? You don't need a mask? And I like, I look around like, what's going on? <laughs> and there's this gentleman in his late 60s yelling at another gentleman in his late 60s about not wearing a mask. The other one retorts, you know, oh, I, I just don't believe in that. Profanity, profanity, mind your own profanity. You guys can kind of fill in the blanks here. And these two old guys are yelling at each other in the middle of Jerry's. So we, we definitely have our own controversies within the culture and even within the church. There's a lot of these questions we're wanting to know, you know, should I do this or should I not do this? And, and oftentimes we kind of do the same thing that the Corinthians are doing where they're using this knowledge to kind of uh, almost cause other brothers and sisters in Christ to sin against their conscience. And, and there's many others like these. Uh, the questions, as a Christian, should I or should I not attend a same-sex wedding? Should I or should not I not be allowed able to smoke marijuana? Should I or should I not be allowed to vote for this candidate or vote for this candidate or support support this political party? A face mask or not? What what is loving? What is uh, what should we do as Christians? I just watched something the other day from Tim Challis, which was like a follow up to an article he had written years ago on sleepovers. He says emphatically, his family. No sleepovers. He doesn't say Christians should never do sleepovers, but he himself says and gives reasons as to why he does not. So there's a lot of these issues that we're still asking. If Paul was to just give them this yes and no answer, we would probably be doing the same thing today, just looking for somebody in the church to tell us yes or no, can I do this or can I not? When really Paul wants us to think a little bit more carefully about how are we loving one another? How are we demonstrating Christ-likeness and laying down our lives for others? Because if you think about it, that's exactly what Christ did. If you look, look at Philippians uh, 2.6, it 
and, and following, it talks about how, how Jesus didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped or held onto. That in a sense, he gave up his divinity, in a sense, for his people. He comes to earth. He lives as a homeless man. He, he suffers betrayal through his friends. He suffers persecution by the people at large, lying about him and accusing him of things he didn't do. And then he goes to a Roman cross to die for his people. Like, if anybody thinks they have freedom, Proverbs even talks about how, you know, we plan our days. We think we know what our life is going to look like, but the Lord is really the one who directs our steps. We think we have freedom. We think we make all these decisions, but really, ultimately, it's up to God. James even says something similar, that ultimately, it's up to God's will what happens at the end of the day. And so who ultimately has freedom? Nobody has more freedom than God but yet he was willing to set that aside for the sake of his people. And, and in Christ's likeness, we have to look at the love of Christ in doing something so crazy like that and say, how do we now demonstrate that Christ's likeness? Paul calls the Corinthians to here, not just giving a black and white answer, but thinking a little bit more about how do, I, how do I love one another? How do I demonstrate the same love that Christ had for us to my brothers and sisters in Christ? Now you'll see uh, a quotation here in, in the very first verse where Paul says, all of us possess knowledge. And this is a quote. We've seen quotes a lot throughout First uh, Corinthians. And what I actually think this is, is I think this was something that Paul is quoting the Corinthians have said to him in some earlier correspondence. And if you look at verses 4 through 6, I think that might have been Paul's initial answer to this question regarding food offered idols. And so the, the Corinthians almost respond to this by saying, you know, look, all of, us, all of us know Paul. We know what you would say. Yes, the, these gods, these idols, they're not really gods. The meat sacrifice to them, there's nothing really spiritual happening here. It's all nothingness. There really is nothing going on. You know, we all understand this. But if, even if you look further down at verse 7, Paul says, actually, you need to understand that not everybody sees everything the same way that you do. And you, you may be hurting someone because you just assume that they have the same understanding, that they see things the same way that you do, and you need to consider your other brothers and sisters in Christ. Especially, I mean, think about this. A, a Christian in the first century who maybe grew up engaging in this cultural practice, who went to the temple constantly to offer up this meat to the idols and then eat and consume it, and they understood the ritual and they participated it. Now, all of a sudden, they're, they're a follower of Christ. They believe there's only one God, and, and they're, they're worshiping Jesus and they feel convicted about this culture of practice, and they're kind of confused as to whether or not, and they think for them, maybe it is sinful for them to do that. And Paul talks in other places in Scripture where if you believe something is a sin, then don't do it. Because to do something that you think is a sin would be sinful, because you're, you're, you're just doing something uh, regardless of how it's making you feel. You don't, you don't really care. You say, yeah, I think it's a sin, but I'm going to do it anyway. Well, then, yeah, there is a problem because there's a heart behind that isn't really seeking to love God. So, so back to this Christian who he's thinking, now I can't do this. But the other Corinthians are like, they think they're so smart. They think they figured it out. They, they know that this is not a real God. They have true knowledge. And they say, come on, you, you can eat the meat. Just get over here. You know, quit being silly. Don't you understand? Just eat the meat. It's okay. And, and they're causing their brother to sin uh, through kind of almost peer pressuring them into doing something that they, they don't feel is right. And so we have to be comfortable, but also, I mean, think how confusing that is to the pagan watching world to see these Christians come into the temple and continue to eat the meat. Yes, yes, they have knowledge. 
yeah, they understand that it's not a real God. It's just a, it's just a stone statue. There's nothing really going on. But they're not considering their brothers. They're not considering the world. They're not considering how best to love those who aren't in the kingdom yet. And I think oftentimes as Christians, we can, we can do something very similar with a lot of different things. I, I mean, and I won't name any names as, as far as like political parties or whatever or candidates. But oftentimes with stuff like that, maybe we're boasting. Maybe we're prideful in our decisions in who we follow and what political party or who we vote for, right? And maybe we're boasting about this in public, and some people can be confused. We can be hurting the witness of another brother or just the world at large because maybe that political person, maybe they did something wrong. Maybe they said something wrong or immoral. Clearly, from Scripture, we're like, that is not okay to treat other human beings like that or say things like that. And maybe another brother in Christ sees that as an acceptance of that behavior, So then they think that that's an okay thing to do. Or maybe the world sees, oh, I guess Christians are okay with this. Maybe maybe Christians are kind of just like us. They're not different. They're not holy. They're not set apart. They they don't question these characteristics of a person, you know. So we, Paul's kind of calling us to be careful. Yes, there's freedom to still, I'm not saying don't vote for this person or that person, but to have a little bit, bit of wisdom, like why would you boast in that anyways? Aren't we supposed to boast in nothing but Christ and the gospel? Well, we don't take our cues from the culture. Instead, the gospel drives the culture. Even, even different poli- political parties tend to, sometimes they'll, they'll vote or chase after things that may be contrary to scripture and, and on the same token, but from a different side, people may see that as an endorsement of that kind of behavior or maybe that, that kind of, you know, cultural X, Y, Z, you put in the thing. You just have to be careful because now we may be causing confusion between the culture and even within the church and creating unnecessary divisions when we should be united around the gospel. Because all, all these things, I'll go into a little bit more later, but all these things will soon pass. And the gospel is what, what truly changes and shapes cultures and changes hearts. And it, it, it's so funny, as I've been looking and examining through church history, we see that kind of all the Roman church had become Christianized, almost. I mean, you question whether or not Constantine was actually a Christian is, you know, that's debatable. He did some questionable things. But you have, you have the Roman Empire kind of becoming Christian for the most part. But then you have the Goths, the barbarians that come in and invade, and they, they're successful. They kind of completely take over and sack a lot of these cities. Well, why didn't Christianity disappear? That's an interesting question. Why didn't it disappear? Because the gospel was still advancing. The kingdom was still going forth. The, the world was waging war and, and fighting over all these different things. And, and even now in our day, we see different ideas coming forth, but it's the gospel. It's God's kingdom that's going to continue to advance. Not all these different things that we could champion. And so we, we have to be careful as Christians what we're saying and what we're advocating for in love towards our brothers and sisters and in love for the world so that we don't cause confusion. And, and in verse in verse 1, when he talks about this, I don't think he's, he's bringing any kind of contrast between knowledge and love. It, it looks like, on first glance, maybe he is. He's saying there's knowledge, but then there's love. But, again, there's quotations. I, I think he's saying this knowledge, this arrogant knowledge, this puffed-up knowledge, this is contrary to love. And if you think about it, if you have some kind of supposed knowledge that's causing your brother or sister to sin, how is that knowledge? That's foolishness. There's nothing to be excited about. There's nothing to boast in about that. That's actually foolishness. And we want to know, are we, are we seeking to exercise our rights as free in Christ? 
or are we seeking to love one another? What's, what's more important? And I have to admit, as a, especially an American Christian, this is easy to, an easy trap to fall into and something that I've done before. I mean, you tell an American Christian they have the right to do anything and they will fight to the death to defend it. But in exercising our freedom, are we, are we loving others? Are we looking out for the best of our brothers? And, and if this sounds crazy to you, or maybe I'm adding some extra burden, look what Paul says at the end of this chapter. He says, if eating meat would cause my brother to sin, I will never eat it again. Paul is willing to completely let go. He has the freedom to never eat meat again for the sake of the, the brethren, for the sake of his brothers and sisters. He said, you know, I, I just won't even touch it again. If, I, if, if it means causing one of my brothers or sisters to sin, I just won't even do it again. That's the kind of attitude we have to have. I mean, Paul, Paul was radical in his love of the church, in the love for his brethren. I mean, he even says he would be willing to cut himself off if his kinsmen could be saved. That, that would be Christ-likeness behavior, seeking to let go of some of these things. And, and the truth is we have, as we go into a, a, a sermon series, as we go in through chapters 8 through 9 and we look at Christian freedom, we also have to remember, yeah, we've been given the freedom to do a lot of things, but we also have the freedom to let some of these things go. Paul's not going to get to heaven. If he were to have cursed meat and said, I'll never eat this again for the sake of my brethren, he's not going to get to heaven and go, man, I missed out on 10 years of some good steak. He, he's willing to let it go. Whatever we could ever receive on this earth, we will receive so much more in heaven with the Father. There, there's nothing in this world to be held on to that is going to be greater than the glory of God. We can let it go for the sake of our brothers. We can let it go for the sake of the lost, that we would win them over to Christ's kingdom. Not our ideologies or our political parties, but over to the gospel. Because the attitude that boasts in this knowledge and says, oh, look at this poor Christian who doesn't understand, like, he doesn't get it, that we have the freedom to go do this thing. Is that the attitude of a more mature brother or sister in Christ? You know, this, this attitude of someone more concerned with winning an argument or winning someone over to their opinion Instead of winning their soul to Christ. When we seek to make these decisions we, and we come at them in the same way, and we should come at them in the same way which Jesus approached every aspect of his ministry. And it's, and it's really interesting, especially because everything's so political, it is a, uh, it's an election year, right? I think this is especially interesting in regards to what Jesus says. He's asked a very political question at one point. Should we pay taxes? And they, they give Jesus, or Jesus says, they give him a coin, or he asked for a denarii. He said, whose, is, whose, inscription is on, or is, whose image and inscription is on the coin? They say Caesar. Now, he, he, look, they ask him a yes-no question. Should we pay taxes? Does Jesus give them a yes-no answer? Again, he doesn't. Instead, he says, they say, well, it's Caesar's image on the coin. He says, well, then give to Caesar what's Caesar's, and give to God what is God's. What does, what's the significance of there? Is Jesus being kind of esoteric or something like this to kind of confuse us? No. Yes, Caesar's image was on the, cor the coin, but God's image is on you. Be concerned about the things of God. Why are you worrying about this thing or that thing? Take the gospel and run with that. Take that and fight for that. Sometimes I, I see, you know, especially over social media, Christians are fighting for, for things that may not even be around uh, 100 or 200 or 300 years from now. Political ideologies, cultural ideologies, philosophies, and stuff like that. We've seen, if you understand anything about history, there's all different kinds of ideas that have come and gone and failed. And, and the truth is, no one's going to usher in the kingdom of God through one ideology or another, but it's going to be the gospel. It's going to be Jesus Christ who comes and ushers in his reign. Not anything that we do or fight for. Not saying that we can't, again, 
but that there's got to be wisdom. And what are, what are we boasting in? What is a worthy thing to boast in? And I would say the most worthy thing we could ever boast in is the fact that Jesus Christ came and he died for us. He lived the perfect life and died for it. The gospel message is, is the greatest thing that anybody could be boasting on. And I'm not saying that every, every Facebook post or Twitter post needs to be a sermon. But, but if you're not saying these things, you know, but then you're, you have like this heavy emphasis on some other cultural issues, then, then it's like, well, what are you fighting for? What, what is of most importance to you? And what kind of message are you sending to your brothers and sisters in Christ? And what, do you, what kind of message are you sending to the world? What's most important to you? It's questions to consider. Everything that Jesus did was to glorify God and love his people. We marvel at his death, but we can't forget his life. The perfect life that he lived too. The perfect balance he had in answering and addressing some of these issues and loving his brothers. You know, it's, it's no surprise that the second part of the greatest commandment when Jesus is asked this question is love your neighbor as yourself. If social media has taught us anything in the last couple of weeks is that a lot of us are much more concerned with knowledge that we think we possess in our minds over the person on the other side of the screen. And, and it's really difficult, I think, to humanize someone through a computer screen. Oftentimes, if you, here, here's just some wisdom from Rick a couple weeks ago. James 1, slow to speak, quick to listen. We gotta be slow to speak and quick to listen. And then, if you see somebody, this is just my advice, take it or leave it. You see somebody post something on Facebook, I would private message them and say, hey, brother, you know, I kind of disagree with what you said, but I'd like to meet with you in person and kind of hear your perspective. Maybe you'll gain your brother. Maybe you'll gain your sister in Christ. Just, just a thought. I, I think you should meet in person. It's easier to recognize the image of God sitting there looking in the eyes of another person as opposed to a computer screen. My two cents. Take it or leave it. Um, verse 2. Very interested in light of all the debates raging across social media. Because Paul says, if anyone imagines, and that Greek word vokeo could be think, almost like, you know, if, if you think you know something, I mean, it's kind of obvious in that statement itself. If you think you know something, Paul says, you really don't know it as the way you ought to do. You think you know something, you think you understand, you, you have all these theories going around about equitable social structures and varying levels of intersectionality and subsections of oppressed people groups in a postmodern secular society. It's like, all this esoteric, you know, you, you think, you know, these, all these ideologies that we might be fighting and championing for. Paul's saying, you don't yet understand this as you ought to in the way that you're fighting for this. What do you, what do you know? You know the gospel, fight for this. These are nothing more than theories, suggestions, opinions of what we think will usher in what humans believe to be the kingdom of God. But we know as Christians that that is not what it is. And, and, and it's nothing new in our day. As, as the Bible says, there's nothing new under the sun. You read John Owen's biblical theology, uh, um, and he addresses like the natural theology of the world. The world constantly groping in darkness through its philosophies and what it thinks. Uh, it's astronomy, it's astrology, and all these ways it thinks it's kind of interacting with a world that they can't touch, groping around in darkness and we should forsake all of this knowledge for the great hope that the one who made us and who contains all knowledge would have knowledge of us. Ultimately, that's, that's going to be the greatest thing. Who cares about what you think you might know today or tomorrow? What philosophy might be championed today and what philosophy might be championed tomorrow? How much better would it be that God know you, that God have intimate knowledge of you? He says at the end of this. And the sure sign of this is that you love God. In verse 3, if you love God, then you're known by God, the much greater knowledge. And this is a sign, our love for God, that he knows us, because in the same way that you come into contact with a power source, of, a powerful source of anything, it will not leave you unaffected. 
Rick's talked about this before, and I'm sure he got it from somebody else, uh, and I, I've heard it many times. The sun is a very powerful source of light. I mean, you step out into the sun. I don't know if any guys are familiar with this living in Eugene, but it's that great big ball of light that comes out every now and then. But the sun is very powerful. The closer you get to it, the more it's going to affect you. You cannot walk away and be unaffected from the sun. Just by walking out into it, 90, what is it, 93 million miles away? Anybody? 93 million? I think it's 93 million miles away. And it still has an effect on us. You go out, you stay a long time, it'll burn your skin. Come into too close a contact, it'll completely destroy you. There'll be nothing left. You cannot walk into the sun and be unaffected. In the same way, you don't encounter the love of God and not leave changed. The gospel's not going to leave you in the same position with which you came in. You don't look at the love of Christ who set aside his freedom, set aside his divinity to come down into humanity, at least in part he set apart his divinity, to come to live the perfect life that you could not live. All the ways in which you've sinned against God, your wretchedness, the things you've done that you're too ashamed about to talk about in public. Jesus Christ went and perfectly lived a sexually pure life. Jesus Christ perfectly loved the poor, loved the widow, loved the oppressed. He loved his people perfectly. And then the death that we deserved, he went and suffered that death on the cross, an excruciating death, a painful death for the love of his people. You don't come into contact with that gospel and leave unchanged. It should have a profound impact on you. And so your love of God is evidence that he knows you. The powerful and gracious love of God that came into contact with us will not leave us anywhere. It's not a powerless, lackluster love that leaves men and women as they are, but changes the way they live their lives, changes the way they think about their brothers. I, I know some of these issues can create up all kinds of controversies and divisions in the church, but Christ's hope was that we would be united, that we would be one as him and the Father are one. And, and sometimes it means set us, setting aside our freedom, setting aside the many things that we can boast and we think we have knowledge. But Paul says in this passage that really true knowledge is a love for people, a love for God, a love for people. This is the greatest knowledge that God would know you and his knowing you is evidence through the way in which you interact with others and the world. In closing, those that are known by God will be transformed and made into a new creation that God's love. Our humility will overcome the world's futility. It's, it's foolishness, it's vapor and chasing all of these things that come and go, like seasons, they change, you know, from the dawn of time, ideas, gods, this pagan god, that pagan god, you know, we see in early church history, but even as we go through different philosophies and stuff, they come and go, but it's the gospel that will last on into eternity. This is the cause that we should be fighting for, the gospel. This is the great reconciliation the great reconciliation of humanity, of, of those who have placed their faith in Christ, coming back into a relationship with the Father. This is the great hope we have. And if you love God, you love his people, especially them, those whom Christ has died for. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is such a difficult season for believers, and I just pray you would give us wisdom. Wisdom in every single way we interact with one another and online and in person with our coworkers, um, with, with every single person. I pray that you would help us navigate these, this, this difficult time with wisdom and with love. God, let us demonstrate the true knowledge, a knowledge that, that sees the gospel as supreme and seeks to love 
everyone in the way that you've loved us. Let us lay down our lives, lay down our freedoms for the sake of our brothers and sisters in Christ, for the sake of those who do not yet know you. Let us put aside our issues for them out of love for them, God. Help us, Lord. We need you. Help us humble ourselves. Please, God. Amen.